0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: Welcome to Radio EcoShock. First, we're going to hear about food shock. That's when the global food system fails. And then a radio producer I admire, Maria Gallardin, brings her summary of reports direct from the radioactive area in Fukushima, Japan. The one and only nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson reports. Don't say you haven't been warned. What if extreme weather events made stronger by climate change hit a couple of major world food-growing regions? We go into food shock. Let's explore what that can mean. On February 12, 2016, in Washington, D.C., at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a group of British and American scientists provided their latest report on the fragility and the resilience of the global food system. We're joined by one of the presenters, Dr. Joshua Elliott, from the Computation Institute at the University of Chicago. Josh, welcome to Radio
2: EcoShock. Thanks very much, Alex.
1: Well, before we go deeper into where our food really comes from, let's try for a snapshot of what food shock would look like if we were watching news as it develops. What might they be describing?
2: Well, it it can really run the gambit depending on, of course, where the shock occurs in the world. But what we tried to do in, in the report was look back at the historical period both from the perspective of strictly of historical data and observational data on food system shocks, and also from a set of models crop models and food system models that predict from climate and weather what agricultural productivity will look like. what we found is that globally a sort of extreme food system shock equated to roughly a ten percent loss in global calories, and that 's from from the big major food and commodity crops, which is maize, soy, wheat, and rice, which together um, account for, I think, about 80% of of the total calories we produce in the world. That 10% loss can come from a lot of different places, and it it really depends on the distribution of production and, of course, on the effects of weather. So for corn and soy, which are, of course, very, very heavily concentrated in certain key breadbasket regions, especially in the Midwest United States and in parts of South America... We found that a food system shock of this sort of scale really required um, a major drought event in the United States Midwest. So the kind of events we saw in 1988, in 2012, etc. And if we're talking about on the much longer time scale, the kind of events we saw in the U.S. Dust Bowl in the 1930s, which is what I, a lot of what I was talking about at the AAAS meeting.
1: And I'm guessing this isn't just a fringe possibility imagined by doomers. Who funded this research and who published the report, Extreme Weather and Resilience of the Global Food System?
2: So the task force brought together uh, researchers from both public and private sector, and indeed even folks from industry in both the U.K. and U.S. It was mostly driven by the Global Food Security Program in the U.K., which is a a cross-agency program that brings together food security concerns from pretty much every element of of the different U.K. agencies. So they were the primary funder and the publisher of the report.
1: And I haven't heard of them before. So they're in the U.K., as
2: you say? That's right. It's a relatively new effort. I think it's probably only a few years old. I think its primary home is in the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the U.K., but it has aspects of their agricultural agency and really touches on sort of every agency within the government that impacts, that has interest in food security issues. And it's a really amazing new model for how science and research gets funded and how it gets done because increasingly these days a lot of the biggest problems in the world, and especially in the sort of environmental sustainability, food productivity, et cetera world, are cross-sectoral issues. Uh, they cross across many different scientific disciplines, and they cross in terms of the governmental sense. They cross their interests cross across many different agencies. So you need these kinds of cross-agency interdisciplinary efforts in order to really take an integrative perspective on the global food system.
1: When I think of what can happen to an important growing area, I'm picturing California with the long drought. But is that the kind of threat that your group studies?
2: It, it absolutely is. Now, we were primarily looking at, again, the big global commodity crops. And California these days has actually moved away from those global commodity crops and is now growing more what we call high-value food, produce, nuts, perennial crops, etc. So when you think about it in terms of global cereal production, maize, wheat, rice, there's not a lot of that grown in California. But, of course, those kinds of drought events are hugely important both for local and global food systems. But, you know, when you think about the actual global food network, when you think about where, are, where is the typical citizen in China and in, or India getting their food calories from, it's coming from, you know, just a handful of staple crops like maize and rice and, and wheat.
1: Well, maybe a better example would be that huge heat wave that hit Russia in 2010. Their grain production fell tremendously and Russia stopped exporting. As the price of wheat rose for big importers like Egypt, revolution followed within a year. Would you count that 2010 event as a global food shock?
2: Absolutely. So what happened in the 2000s and really sort of culminated in uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10 is a sequence of both food shocks and of sort of increasing overall demand on the food sector from a number of sources. Uh, biofuels usually gets the most blame, but there are a lot of different reasons why uh, the demand side was increasing so dramatically, including a dramatic increase in pressure from the meat industry for agricultural commodities, for animal feed. So the situation was sort of perfect, as a, was a per, sort of perfect storm of consequences. And when you had a food shock on top of those scenarios, so something like the heat wave in Russia, that then leads to sort of poor governmental responses such as export restrictions such as panic buying on the international markets, which then further inflate global food prices and further sort of complicate food shocks so that's the sort of the traditional picture of the sort of market driven food shock, so you saw because market prices increased for grain, import-dependent countries like Egypt saw huge increases in their local food prices and therefore saw political instability in Egypt and Tunisia, etc. And there's absolutely no doubt that those global market factors and those global food shocks contributed to the instability that led to that insecurity around, around the Middle East. You also have domestic food shocks. You know, of course, the direct domestic effects of Of drought and climatic extremes, which can also uh, contribute to food insecurity. And that's what's typically blamed for what happened in Syria. There was a huge drought in Syria, which obviously wasn't significant enough to really affect global markets, but led to a lot of domestic food instability and a lot of migration from rural to urban populations, which again, because it happened in the context of high global food prices and other political destabilizing factors within the country, significantly contributed to the destabilizing forces and the, and the subsequent security situation in Syria.
1: All right. Now, we could say this is all just a matter of weather, but what is the role of climate change when it comes to fragility in world food production?
2: That was a big piece of the report that we were doing, and is trying to look at, uh, trying to char- characterize what the present risk is in the food system and how that risk is likely to evolve in the future. And what we found is that there is growing evidence that food system shocks are likely to become more severe and more frequent in the future because of climate change. There's not quite the silver bullet on that yet. There's still a lot more work to be done in order to, to say with any absolute surety about how extreme events and climate variability and resulting global food system resilience is likely to evolve in the future. But we can say that the evidence is certainly pointing in the direction of increasing severity and increasing frequency of global extreme events as, as climate changes. And in some places, the story is significantly worse than others. And importantly for perhaps this audience and importantly for the global food system, the U.S. is especially sensitive. The U.S. Midwest especially is especially sensitive to climate change in this respect because of the projected changes, because the production system in the U.S., and in the Midwest is right at that sort of threshold uh, of temperature thresholds where an increase of just a couple of degrees is already enough to significantly impact the productivity levels in in places like Iowa and Illinois.
1: Yeah, one of your colleagues, Tim Benton, blogged about something he called the new dust bowl.
2: Right. So that's um, a lot of the work that I was talking about there is sort of what are the chances of the next dust bowl. So there's been a lot of work suggesting that a dust bowl type of event is increasingly becoming more likely in the future. And what what made the dust bowl special is not necessarily the severity of an individual drought, although the individual droughts in the 30s were severe, so the 1936 drought for the Midwest was especially severe. But what made it special was the persistence of drought, so that you had these, these three major drought events coincident in only a sh- relatively short amount of time. And those sort of persistent drought events are expected to become more likely in the future across the United States. And so we wanted to look at what are the implications of that scale of event for the food production system, both now and in the future under increasing temperatures. And so We did a study which is under review right now for publication, but which um, I presented at AAAS and is summarized in a couple of different places, looking at what the scale of those events would be. And what we found is that that the 30s really were quite extreme. So if if we had another decade like the 30s now under present-day technological conditions, just the worst drought of the 1930s, so 1936, would likely be about 50% worse than the drought we saw in 2012, which... You really is unprecedented in the modern era and, and honestly is about as bad as it was in the 30s. It's obviously, for various reasons, it's impossible to truly compare the agricultural system and, and an agricultural extreme event between the 1930s and the present because the technology, the distribution of crops, everything is just so different. But roughly speaking, the, the losses that we saw in the 30s were about the same as the losses we would expect today under those same climate conditions. Uh, Furthermore, we found that it was very, very sensitive to increasing temperature. So if you take the 1930s, if it happens, say, 20 years from now, and we get... Let me step back for a second. The 1930s were very extreme in terms of the precipitation distribution. 1936 in the Midwest was by far the lowest precipitation event we've seen in the last hundred and some odd years, and was um, equated to about... A 50% reduction in, in relative to average precipitation from what we normally see, which is average over sort of uh, agricultural area in the Midwest. And that's, that is really is it, a huge reduction. But in terms of temperature, it really wasn't that extreme. 1936 was about the same as 1988 or 2012. And it turns out that at these high temperatures, crops tend to be much more sensitive to uh, increasing temperature than they are to, to precipitation for a variety of reasons one of which is in the united states uh, a lot of the water that crops use actually comes from soil moisture that is built up over the wet winter and spring months in the us so you can have relatively suppressed precipitation in the summer without it having a fully destroying effect obviously it's it's still very damaging but without having a fully whereas increasing temperature affects the crop throughout its growing cycle by reducing season length and increasing evapotranspiration and and thus creating water stress just from increasing temperatures. So in short, as we get to these higher temperatures, the temperature ends up mattering even more than the precipitation. So by the middle of the century, under sort of most scenarios, by the middle of the century, if we're talking about a three degrees warmer world relative to sort of pre-industrial levels, the average year is already about as damaging to, say, U.S. corn, for example, than the worst year of the 1930s is. So basically, at these extremes, crops are really, really, really sensitive to temperature. And so just because the 1930s were so rare on a precipitation basis doesn't sort of get us off the hook from considering them as a sort of potential scenarios.
1: You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking about food shock with Dr. Joshua Elliott from the Computation Institute at the University of Chicago. Wow, what you just said is is kind of a wow factor for me, uh, that the average year will be as bad as the Dust Bowl years. Well, now, citizens and policymakers need to know two things. First of all, they need to know that a world-class food shock could happen, and, and your report is doing that. But then, how can we become more resilient? How to survive what seems like an inevitable blow? What are some of the recommendations from your group?
2: So we have recommendations both on sort of the supply side and um, on the demand side. So on the supply side, there are, of course, many ways that we can improve the resiliency of production systems around the world through improved management and through a better sort of distribution of production. So improved management options, obviously, things like, you know, irrigation, more efficient use of irrigation, and more extensive use of irrigation. Additionally, there are some sort of environmental quality things we can do that improve both our productivity and our water use efficiency and that improve local environment. So these are things like improved soil management using low-till or no-till soils, which basically means not turning over the soils and tilling it, which which sort of releases a lot of the soil carbon, which makes the soil really healthy um, into the atmosphere. So those are some suggestions on the supply side for improving the supply side resilience. On the demand side, we made some very interesting suggestions and to try and help improve the sort of resilience and stability of the system. And the most interesting one um, from my perspective and, and that I like to sort of push, and in fact, when we were in Washington last week for the AAAS meeting, we went down to Capitol Hill and we talked to a lot of Senate offices and we were talking to them about some ways that the U.S. government could actually you know, affect policy in order to improve system resilience. And there are really some interesting things that the U.S. could do Unilaterally to improve resilience. And one of the biggest ones is relating to biofuels. So, you know, right now, as, as your listeners probably know, the U.S. produces a really substantial amount of corn-based ethanol. Um, something like 40% of the U.S. corn supply goes to producing about 15 billion gallons a year of ethanol. And I'm not saying one way or the other whether or not that's a good use of our food supply, but if we're going to be using that corn to produce ethanol, then at the least what we could do is sort of treat that almost as a as a reserve and allow that reserve to respond better to, to changing price and supply so that our biofuel production could actually absorb some of that shock. And we actually saw this happen in 2012, despite, in fact, not because of, but despite the policies of, of the government. Prices were already so high in 2012 that when the big drought happened, It was just not economical for bioenergy producers to continue to purchase corn at the existing prices during that drought. And so biofuel production actually dropped despite the U.S. mandate for production. Biofuel production dropped in 2012, and actually that ended up absorbing a significant amount of the production shock that happened to corn, at least, just, just, this is just for corn, obviously, in that year because of that drought. And if we could actually figure out a way to encourage that kind of response via policy, then that big stock of, of food crop that we're diverting into biofuel could actually become sort of a virtual reserve to buffer against big global food shocks in the future.
1: Yes, you talk about reserves. I know that the longtime grain watcher, Lester Brown, would warn that world grain stocks could only supply a few months of food at best if there was a disaster, and it appears that that's the case. Should we be creating a long-term food reserve as the ancient Egyptians did?
2: Wow, well, I mean, it's a good question. Um, You know, reserves are, of course, a national issue, and they're treated very differently from country to country. In a lot of places, like in the United States, you know, most of the reserves are actually held privately and fluctuate up and down based on market conditions, whereas in other places, they have huge public reserves, like in China. I was talking to Tim Benton last week, and he said that in the UK, there's only something like, I believe he said something like 10 days worth of food that could feed the UK in reserves there. So if something happened to, say, disrupt the import system, you know, uh, if there was a major port disruption in the UK or some other problem that prevented food imports, you know, there really is quite a, a reduced reserve system there. In terms of global reserve, that's a difficult one. That would require countries to work together, uh, would require countries to sort of to share, and, and it would be, I think it would be a pretty difficult system to work out. I mean, in some sense, we do have a, a sort of global reserve system that whenever there's a food shock event in Africa or um, in another part of the world that can't afford to increase imports or otherwise manage the the, food, the domestic food shock themselves, you know, other countries of the world are asked to step up through the UN and contribute food from their own stocks in order to feed those those populations. Um, but, but as you say, it's a very imperfect system. It typically takes way too long to implement. And, you know, there's a lot of Starvation and health and problems that occur in the meantime, while the uh, countries of the world are trying to get their act together to to get those food reserves in place for those countries. So, it's certainly an interesting idea. I, I haven't thought much about how it could be implemented in practice, but
1: yeah, countries are very protective of their food supply, and if you had an international food bank of some kind, then maybe that could be used to control countries. So, it's it's a thorny issue, I grant you. Now, on another aspect that Lester Brown also brought up, he said that rice was within half a degree of its upper growing limits already. Maybe we'll develop better rice, but we haven't yet. So did your group talk about that? And what happens if the world rice zones become just too hot for that crop?
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, presumably what happens is that growing areas have to move around quite substantially. And when it comes to rice, it depends a lot on, on irrigation and water availability rice in many parts of the world, most of the world, is irrigated. And that helps to make it a little bit more resilient to, to higher temperatures. So irrigated rice, because it's typically a flood irrigation, is a little bit more resilient uh, against those high temperatures and so it can survive a higher, higher temperature increases. But presumably the answer is that as certain regions become unsuitable for production, other regions will have to, you know, land use change will have to happen and other regions will have to come into play. So in the United States, for instance, we already started growing a little bit of rice in uh, sort of Louisiana and the southern Mississippi River Valley. Um, it could be as temperatures continue to increase, a lot of the places that are currently growing cotton are going to have to stop growing cotton because it's, it's going to be outside of its temperature range, and they may have to start growing rice or some other tropical crop that's more suitable for the, temperature range, the resulting temperature range in Alabama and Louisiana and Mississippi and et cetera. And maybe cotton has to move further north along with all the other crops. So by the middle of the century, it may be that the center of the Corn Belt, rather than being in Iowa, is in, you know, the middle or northern Minnesota. By the end of the century, maybe it's in Manitoba. And maybe maybe Iowa is the is the cotton capital, you know. Those kinds of really significant land use change pressures may have to happen in order to keep up agricultural productivity. And those things are possible, certainly, in the United States. We certainly have the expertise and we have the, the capital to be able to make those transitions, but those transitions won't be free. There's going to be a lot of, of costs that come with moving that infrastructure from where it currently is to new locations, and that's physical infrastructure and knowledge infrastructure, cultural infrastructure, all the kinds of things that have to, to move as you transition between, in very different agricultural systems.
1: And, of course, there are limits. I mean, as you get further north in Canada, the prairie soil runs out. You get very acidic lands full of lakes and rocks. And uh, so we both know there are limits to how far you can go.
2: Especially north, yeah, absolutely. The soil soil quality drops off very rapidly above, say, 56 degrees latitude. Mm-hmm.
1: We're starting to get to a wrap-up point here, but do you think when people in your group talk about this, is there a level of warming where a population of 7 billion or more people – just cannot be fed when mass famine may reappear on Earth.
2: Well, that's precisely the kinds of issues that we're trying to address in our research now. And honestly, the questions are still open. You know, what keeps me up at night is not necessarily whether or not we can produce enough calories to feed 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 billion people. You know, right now on planet Earth, we produce enough calories, it's estimated, to feed 9 billion people. But we can't even manage to actually feed 7 billion of them satisfactorily. That's because the level of meat demand uses additional calories. It's estimated for every two vegetal calories that goes in, you get about one calorie of meat out. And so as, as wealth and income inequality increase, you have increasing meat demand from the wealthy, uh, which in- increases the overall demand pressure on the food system and potentially increases issues of hunger at that lower level. And then, of course, you also have Waste and just you know overall sort of overabundance of diets. So in the U.S., of course, our problem in the U.S. is not too few calories, but actually too many. We have problems with obesity and um, with people eating too many calories and and too unhealthy of calories. And similarly, we of course have a massive problem with waste. That's a big problem. So if you project out into the future in 2050 or 2060, it's expected that the really dramatic increases in in wealth in places like India and China or Brazil and other parts of South America and even in parts of Africa are going to lead to dramatic increases in the demand for meat, which are going to put, again, increasing stresses on the food system. It's not clear to me whether or not we can meet both the demand caused by increasing population and the demand caused by increasing demand for meat at the same time that we're facing the impacts and trying to adapt to to climate change around the world. And at the same time, that we're hoping to use the agricultural system to reduce greenhouse gases through the production of biofuels and bioenergy. So all of these factors are going to put increasing stress on on the food system over the next few decades, and it's going to be a big challenge. It's really hard to say, you know, at the top end whether there's some limit to how much we can feed the planet, and, and I, you know, I, I tend to be uh, sort of a technological optimist, and I tend to think that if we put our minds to it, and if we determine that we're going to reduce food system waste, and that we're going to make a sustained effort to increase productivity in potential in underperforming potential breadbasket regions like sub-Saharan Africa, I think that we can get to the point where we can feed the entire global population. But one other thing to keep in mind is that we're also trying to put pressure on the global food system to improve our environmental outlook. So, I already mentioned biofuels and bioenergy, obviously, but there's also just direct emissions from food production, whether that's indirectly through deforestation or directly through soil carbon emissions, the production and use of fertilizers, etc. It's expected if you just take demand and and productivity and project them out into the future in a business as usual scenario, it's estimated that by twenty fifty, the food system by itself, not counting transportation, not counting any other part of the global greenhouse gas productions, just the food system itself will emit enough greenhouse gases to surpass that one point five to two degree temperature limit that was set in the Paris Agreement in December at the COP21 meeting. So there's no way we can reach that Paris Agreement without changing our food system and reducing greenhouse gases in our food system. So it's a tough problem.
1: It sure is. So many listeners will want to follow up and read the reports for themselves. Where can they find them?
2: Well, that is a great question. You know, there was a, a really good article last week in the BBC by Jonathan Amos that your listeners could probably find pretty easily by Googling Googling sort of drought and my name and BBC or googling Jonathan Amos. It's called 21st Century U.S. Dusk Bowl Risk Assessed. In terms of the actual reports themselves, what they want to do is go to the Global Food Security, the UK Global Food Security website, and search for the Joint Task Force Resilience Report.
1: Okay, so I've got that website for listeners. It's foodsecurity.ac.uk, so that's the global food security site, and there's a blog there that's very interesting with lots of links. We have been speaking with Joshua Elliott from the University of Chicago. He's part of a study group of British and American scientists looking at food resilience and the likely arrival of global food shocks as climate change and extreme weather develop. You can find links to a short video, the reports, and more in my weekly Radio EcoShock blog at ecoshock.info. Josh, thanks so much for talking with us.
2: Thank you, Alex. It was really enjoyable.
1: I'm Alex Smith, your host on Radio EcoShock.
2: Radio EcoShock.
1: Unlike my guest, I am not a techno-optimist about our coming food supply. Just in, a new report says 75% of crops depend on pollination Yet 40% of pollinators, like bees and butterflies, are threatened by, quote, total extinction. Bat and bird pollinators are also disappearing. That is just one driver, not counting heat beyond crop limits, extreme weather events, including floods and droughts, human encroachment on nature everywhere, expanding human population, the list goes on and on. Personally, I expect to witness mass famine again in my lifetime as seen in the 1960s in China in 1959, really, and Ethiopia in 1984. But it will hit more countries. Even in developed nations, it seems likely food will become a much larger part of our budget, and at times, difficult to afford, for millions. I have food insurance in buckets in the basement which will last at least 30 years. We grow more of our own food every year. We are plugged into a network of local food producers and community gardens. In the interview, Joshua Elliott mentioned the United Kingdom has a scant 10 days of food provisions. If the ships and planes stop for any reason, the country is in danger. Food backups in all countries have dropped dangerously low just at a time of growing threats to agriculture as usual. I say, don't take food for granted. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. We're coming to the fifth year after the start of the world's biggest nuclear disaster. On March 2011, three reactors at the seaside complex at Fukushima, Japan, blew up. I covered it extensively on Radio Ecoshock, and one of my best sources was nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. Arnie is back in Japan, checking out the radiation, the impacts, the human costs, and the efforts by the operator TEPCO to stem continuing radiation that is running into the Pacific Ocean. His first telephone reports have been compiled by a hardworking California radio maker, Maria Gallardin. She hosts TUC Radio. Previously, Maria was a leading producer at KPFA Radio in Berkeley and was the founding producer of the public affairs program Making Contact. Here is Maria Gallardin.
3: TUC Radio time of useful consciousness. Fukushima, five years later. If you followed the internet news on the unfolding disaster that began in Fukushima on May 11, 2011, you are familiar with one voice for sure. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates. He brought all the important detail of the operation of nuclear power plants into the discussion. Gunderson is a licensed reactor operator and managed and coordinated projects at 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S. After 20 years as nuclear engineer and executive, Gunderson was fired from his job with Nuclear Energy Services in 1990 when he became a whistleblower on the lack of nuclear safety. Gunderson served as an expert witness in the investigation of the Three Mile Island accident and testified on the serious flaws of the Vermont Yankee, San Onofre, and Diablo Canyon nuclear power plants. Both Vermont Yankee and San Onofre are now in shutdown. In 2008, Gunderson's wife Maggie formed the nonprofit profit Fairwinds Energy Education. Their website features videos and podcasts, as well as blog posts on current events, expert witness reports on nuclear safety issues, a book list, media coverage, and much more. The website is widely used in Japan, and thanks to dedicated volunteer translators, is available in four languages. And this radio program gives you a sense of the work done through that website. On the fifth anniversary of the Fukushima accident, Arnie Gunderson is spending a month in Japan to assess the status of the cleanup and follow-up. He comes to Japan at a very crucial moment, even though polls show that at least 70% of Japanese do not want the nuclear power plants reopened that were shut down five years ago. The Abe government is determined to put many of them back online and has begun the process. And to make things worse, the Japanese government is planning to burn plutonium mixed with uranium in the aging reactors, a practice that has been abandoned in the U.S. due to the high risk. Gunderson was invited to speak to community groups and NGOs across Japan. He's traveling with a group of scientists and a representative of NERS the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Mary Olson plans to focus on the health effects on women and children. All research and experience show that women and children are especially vulnerable to radiation. As I'm preparing this radio program for broadcast, Gunderson and Olson have arrived in Japan at the first stop, Fukushima Prefecture. Like all visitors to the area, they came equipped with their own Geiger counters. Gunderson spoke with Maggie Gunderson at Fairwinds to phone in his first report. He had taken the bullet train to Fukushima City and drove by car to some of the ghost towns that surround the power plant.
4: I'll tell you, the devastation's are awful. You go by beautiful homes and they're abandoned. You know, the there's snow in the mountains and there's, you know, the driveways aren't plowed and the places are beginning to get run down and in their front yard you'll see dozens of bags and each bag weighs a ton filled with dirt. There's 30 million bags weighing 30 million tons of radioactive dirt and radioactive tree leaves and everything. And then of course all the rice paddies are loaded with plastic bags. Full of radioactive materials, so they 're not going to be you know growing rice there for a long time. Then we found a parking lot at a at a supermarket that had a, a large radioactive source right in the middle of the parking lot that people were walking over and driving over It was loaded with a black radioactive dust so just wherever you go it 's everywhere, and every house we saw was abandoned. Then you get into a small town that uh, is open during the day for the construction people and then they they close down when the construction people leave. Wherever you go, there's constant reminders that everything's radioactive. Big orange signs on the side of the road saying, you know, this area is not under construction, but this area is being decontaminated. Then we go to areas that were complete and they're radioactive as all heck. Uh, So as soon as they clean it, it rains and it becomes contaminated again.
0: Why is that? Why does the rain bring it in again? Is that washing down from the mountains or the hillsides, or is that washing from the site, or is it radioactivity still exuding from the site that's being redeposited?
4: Well, they're only cleaning 20 feet on every side of the road, so all the dust and debris that's up in the forests is being blown by the wind or washed by the rain right into uh, people's front yards again. One of the samples that one of my uh, fellow scientists collected showed plutonium and significant amounts of plutonium. He was getting 19 disintegrations per second of plutonium. And, uh, you know, that stuff hangs around for a quarter of a million years.
0: That plutonium was part of the core that came out then in the explosion, correct?
4: Yeah. The only source it could ever have come from was inside that nuclear reactor. Fukushima City is relatively clean. It's uh, 40 miles away from the site. So I'm with three carloads of scientists, and as we left Fukushima City, their radiation detectors were reading (laughs) about 40 (laughs) counts per minute. And then as we got into the hills between Fukushima city and, and the power plant, the radiation detectors went up to 400, 10 times what it was in the, uh, in the city. And there's heavy snow everywhere. There's at least a foot of snow in the mountains. So that's acting as shielding and preventing these numbers from even being higher. We went out to a uh, incinerator. It's uh, under construction. And they plan to burn 10 tons a day of material. Well, there's uh, there's 30 million tons of material up here. So that means they'll have it all done in three million days. That's a long, 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 long time. A thousand years.
0: A thousand huh? years.
4: Yeah, this incinerator's not working yet, but they're throughput is estimated to be 10 tons a day all of those particles are up there in the hills and there's no way that any number of human beings could go up into an entire mountainside some of these mountains are, are uh, 8,000 feet high and so it, it, you know to go up into them and clean a, a mountain range uh, is just beyond the capability of human beings so what happens is every time it snows or every time it rains it washes down into these villages and it washes down into the Pacific. In in these hills around Fukushima, there's monkeys. And uh, we saw one today, as a matter of fact, running across the road. And one of the scientists uh, watched the monkey poop and then collected the poop. And the monkey poop had uh, 50,000 becquerels per kilogram of cesium in it. So you know, these animals that are living up there in the forests are becoming more and more and more highly radioactive. You know, the, the impression I get is uh, the futility of the cleanup. I mean, the, these areas that scientists on with samples today were supposedly clean and they're highly radioactive again. This deep sadness of seeing these beautiful family homes just, just abandoned and, and likely to remain abandoned for a lifetime. So. The futility and the sadness, I think, are the two things that weigh on me the most uh, as I go to bed tonight.
3: That was part of the first phoned-in report by Arnie Gunderson. He is on a one-month journey to Japan to assess the status of the cleanup of the Fukushima accident. From here, he will travel on to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Kobe, Kyoto, and the Osaka Global Environmental Forum. Gunderson is Chief Engineer of Fairwinds Associates and on the Board of Directors for Fairwinds Energy Education. That's a 501c3 nonprofit. profit Just before leaving for Japan, Arnie Gunderson sat down with the staff of Fairwinds Energy Education. His wife Maggie and Toby Aronson and Caroline Phillips, they went over the information that is so crucial in understanding the current situation in Japan. First here's Arne Gunderson addressing the claim by TEPCO that the cleanup of the land around the Fukushima power plants is well underway, facilitating a possible return of some of the evacuated residents.
5: The country's uh, seriously contaminated even now. People that live in the prefecture are living in what, what we would call an RCA, and that stands for a radiologically contaminated area. If that were in the, in the states, if that were in a nuclear power plant, those kinds of levels of radiation would require that uh, you, you couldn't walk into those areas without health physics support.
6: Currently, uh, there are a lot of people who are dislocated, but are people also returning to these contaminated areas as well right now?
5: Yeah, I think they're being forced to to, um, go back in. You've got to remember, there's 160,000 people that were uh, evacuated originally, and now the number's just a hair under 100,000. So 60,000 have gone back into areas that we would consider by United States standards, highly contaminated. But what the Japanese did was they raised the standards. And um, they took away the money from these people when they were in in housing, not in the prefecture. So they said, if you want to continue with the stipend we have you on, you've got to go home. So it's basically they're forcing them back into an area that's much more radioactive than it was when they left. So Arnie, not only are people moving back into
6: contaminated areas, but... We also have some nuclear power plants in Japan starting up again. Can you talk about some concerns regarding that issue?
5: Yeah, Toby, that's a that's a great question. You know, there were fifty-four nuclear power plants in Japan operating right before the Great East earthquake and uh the disaster at Fukushima Daiichi. Well there were four units that Daiichi wiped out, plus there were two others that uh will never start again. Plus, there were four others just down the road of Fukushima Daini. So 10 nuclear reactors will essentially never operate again because they're in Fukushima Prefecture. In addition, at least another 10 or 15 are too old to operate and should have been shut down even before the earthquake. So that 54 units has uh, tumbled down to about 26. Of those 26, the Japanese are frantically trying to get them back up and running. And the real reason behind it all is, you've heard it before, money. The banks have put a lot of money into maintaining those 26 power plants and paying for the staffs to sit there essentially idle for the last five years. Um, They want their money back. And the only way to get their money back is to turn those nukes back on. So what's happened in the last um, five years is that the, uh, the Japanese have haven't really made these plants any stronger. What they've done is they've reanalyzed all of their calculations and taken away all the margins of safety and said that, well, a stronger earthquake, um, these plants can, can withstand. But in fact, there's been no major changes to the structure. It's frightening. You know, these, these plants are, were built by people my age when, when we got out of college in the 70s. They're old. And the Japanese refuse to acknowledge that it's it was a bad bet then, and they're going to double down on a bad bet now. The Abe regime is very pro-business, and um, the banks have d- deep uh, inroads into the Abe regime. Um, and on top of that, the 10 utilities that run all of the power grid in Japan are little fiefdoms that have incredible pressure in their parliament diet. So uh, politically, the pressure from the banks, the pressure from uh, the, uh, the these 10 power companies, Tokyo Electric is only one of 10, uh, and the Abe regime are totally ignoring what the public wants. And you're right, it's at least 70% of the Japanese, including almost every woman and just about half the men, don't want nuclear power to operate again, but it's being ramrodded through by financial interests uh, that that just don't care about public health and safety.
6: When there were no nuclear reactors in Japan going, I never read about any blackouts or power outages. And my question is, how is Japan meeting its energy needs without all of the nuclear reactors that haven't been restarted or will not be restarted? Are they necessary?
5: Yeah, there's a couple of answers to that, Caroline. It's a great question. The the first is that the Japanese power grid is really nowhere near uh, a first uh, a world power power grid. They have ten little fiefdoms, and they don't share power across the grid. So you've got Tepco to the north and Chubu to the south of Tokyo, and and each has an enormous overcapacity in case one unit goes down. In the United States, we have a shared grid. We pool our power. In Japan, they don't. Matter of fact, in in Western Japan, they're at 50 cycles per second. And in Eastern Japan, they're at 60 cycles per second. So they can't even agree on how many cycles per second the electricity should flow at. So um, when all these units shut down, there was a lot of excess capacity sitting around anyway. And it was largely gas and largely coal. So what happened is... uh, two things first and the japanese uh, really deserve an enormous amount of credit they conserved like crazy they they really went on an efficiency kick I was in office buildings where the temperature inside was, was 78 uh, in the summer, and, um, and it wasn't bad. You know, it, uh, They realized that they were overcooling in the summer and overheating in the winter. So the Japanese really went into an energy efficiency and a conservation mode. They did import more coal and, and, and gas, and then they also brought in the equivalent of about six nuclear power plants worth of solar power. So they're beginning already to displace with solar power these old nukes. And you're right, there were no blackouts. Tokyo re- re- remained well over-illuminated, trust me, um, and and life went on.
0: Arnie, I have a follow-up question to that. You touched on solar. What is the actual progress with renewables?
5: Well, there's enormous pressure by these 10 utilities that we talked about, you know, the 10 governing um, electric boards essentially are putting enormous pressure on the diet so that renewables are being stifled but even despite that people are doing it and and, and corporations are doing it you know that the interesting thing is that even before the uh, disaster at fukushima daiichi japan had the highest electrical rates in the industrial world and that's a, that's an incredible burden and th- now they're going to be higher because they just You know, paid for five years of nuclear plants that didn't run, and they want that money back too. So, electric costs in Japan are arbitrarily high because these 10 powerhouse utilities control the diet, control the parliament, and uh, the people are getting stuck with high rates. So now we've got high rates that they pay for out of their wall socket, and they're realizing, heck, I can go off the grid and put a solar collector on and get it cheaper. So there's they've priced themselves to a point where new solar is much, much cheaper than what they can get from the grid. And the big industries are realizing it too. The big industries are, are – uh, building their own power plants or building their own solar collectors so that they don't have to pay these exorbitant rates that the Japanese are being charged.
6: Arnie, moving on to um, issues regarding
5: the outpour of radiation into the Pacific Ocean, there's been a lot of debate on exactly how contaminated is the Pacific Ocean. Is it affecting our food? Is it affecting our water quality? Yeah, Toby, the Japanese are focusing on leaks from the Fukushima power plants. And, you know, that's probably a mile of coastline, and and it is severely contaminated, and it continues to to bleed into the Pacific every day. But what no one is paying any attention to is that the entire mountain range that runs a 100 miles up and down this coast is also contaminated. And as much radiation is pouring out into the rivers and streams, into the Pacific from the mountain range, because it's so contaminated, as from the Fukushima site. So, you know, Tokyo Electric would have you just look at the site and say, well, we're doing things to collect the radiation. But in fact, they've got an entire state pouring radiation into the Pacific. So what's in the Pacific? The, um, off of California, they're finding radiation at what I would consider significant uh, levels. Um, a cubic meter is about 3 feet by 3 feet by 3 feet. And uh, in a cubic meter of, um, of ocean water, they're finding 10 radioactive decays every second. That's called the disintegration. So that's called 10 becquerels per cubic meter. So a cubic meter of, uh, of, of water, if you were in a dark room, would have 10 flashes of light every second and that's going to go on for 300 years. So we have contaminated the biggest source of water on the planet, and there's no way to stop it.
0: So are you saying that the contaminated water problem is hopeless?
5: It used to be that scientists believed dilution is the solution to pollution. But I think we're finding with the biggest body of water in the, on the planet that you can't dilute this stuff. Um, and we're going to begin to see this bioaccumulation, which is all the fish that are in the in the ocean are going to uptake the cesium and the strontium, and uh, and become more and more and more radioactive.
6: Arnie you used the term bioaccumulation. Um, if you could explain to our audience what exactly that means and sort of what that implies as far as you know food quality goes or water quality. Well, if you
5: think of it as um, there's radiation on the bottom of the Pacific and uh, that gets picked up by the um by the whatever's on the bottom, the seaweed. And then little fish eat the seaweed and little fish get eaten by bigger fish and those fish get eaten by still bigger fish.
6: Every <laughs> the time- circle of life <laughs> <laughs>
5: Right. And that process, every time they do that, the cesium in the little fish gets concentrated in the bigger fish. It's not just radioactivity. We know that about uh, the mercury that's in tuna. The coal plants have thrown mercury out into the oceans and it works its way up the food chain, too. So this concept of bioaccumulation doesn't just apply to radiation, but it is applying to fish in the food chain now.
6: I know that. I haven't heard anything announced by the FDA, and I'm not a believer that the FDA would automatically say anything, but I know we don't have any substantiated um, radio levels in our seafood coming to the United States, but what is your stance? Do you eat out and take Maggie out to sushi regularly for bits of yellowfin tuna?
5: You know, the, the, uh, the FDA limit is so high It's 12 times higher for Americans than what it is for Japanese. So basically, if the Japanese find a fish that they can't eat, they can ship it to America and feed it to us, and the FDA doesn't care. So we've got uh, a really high threshold. And on top of that, the FDA is hardly sampling fish at all, less than a tenth of a percent of the fish that come into the United States or tested, really, really small number. So my decision is I'm not eating fish from the Pacific. That's a personal decision. Um, I, I never did eat yellowfin tuna, by the way, because they're such a beautiful fish, I just really couldn't stand you know, killing one.
0: Arnie, while you're in Japan, I know that a number of presentations are set for you and you'll be traveling all over. In your presentations, what are you specifically talking about to these groups?
5: Yeah, the first thing I'll be talking about in Japan is the use of plutonium in their nuclear reactors for fuel. They call that MOX, a mixed oxide fuel, but it's uranium and plutonium together inside a nuclear reactor. Running a reactor on plutonium is, one, really technically complicated, and two, expensive. There's not a reactor in America that uses MOX fuel, and there's none in the pipeline either. Why? Because... Our utilities are um, trying to minimize the cost, and it's actually cheaper to use uranium than it is for mixed oxide fuel. In Japan, they don't care. You know, as we talked about at the beginning here, the, the utilities that own these power plants have control over the rates. So they're paying more for this plutonium fuel. In America, not a power plant in the country uses plutonium for fuel, because it's more complicated to license. And after a nuclear accident, it also complicates the accident analysis. So it's, it's a real mess using plutonium. And uh, I really want to talk about how I think it's a bad decision that plutonium will be used in Japanese reactors.
6: What do you think is the terrorist risk with MOX reactors?
5: You know, th- th- there's some brilliant people, and, and, and Frank von Hippel is probably at the top of the list at Princeton, who have been saying for 20 and 30 years that having plutonium dr- driving down the highways to fuel uh, a power plant is a real terrorist risk. And the reason is that if you capture a truck that's got plutonium and uranium in it, uh, you can chemically separate out the plutonium and make a bomb. You don't need a, a real fancy... Uh, Uh, gaseous diffusion plant in billions of dollars, you can chemically pull out the plutonium and make a bomb.
3: That was a conversation with Arnie Gunderson that included Maggie Gunderson and staff at Fairwinds Energy Education. As a young man, Gunderson believed in the promise of nuclear power. He was a licensed reactor operator and managed projects at 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S. However, he became increasingly more aware of the high risks, while at the same time observing serious safety breaches. He spoke out and became a whistleblower. After 20 years as nuclear engineer and executive, Gunderson was fired from his job in 1990. My thanks to Fairwinds and Maggie and Arnie Gunderson for the material in this radio program that was recorded by them in February 2016. You can find the full podcast of their conversation and the phone calls from Japan on the website of fairwinds.org. That's fairwinds with an E, F-A-I-R-E, winds, dot org. Fairwinds website has information on uranium mining and fuel, design and construction, decommissioning of nuclear power plants, and on waste and spent fuel. The Gundersons are also reaching out to many other experts with interviews and references to their work. You can subscribe to podcasts on their page, Fairwinds Org. Come back for TUC Radio's next broadcast for an up-close interview of Arnie and Maggie Gunderson. I finally met them in person when they came to California for a November 2015 speaking tour. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, www.tuc. Radio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Downloads are free, and we appreciate any size donation to keep TUC Radio on the air. Our email address is tuc at. T-u-c-radio.org. time of useful consciousness is an aeronautical term it's the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness time for useful projects to rescue the planet and the plane my name is Maria Gelauden thank you for listening
1: That was Maria Gallardin of TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Be sure to support Maria as an independent radio maker at tucradio.org. You can find still more telephone reports from Fukushima by Arnie Gunderson at fairwinds.org. That's F-A-I-R-E Winds.org. As Helen Caldicott wrote in her book, nuclear power is not the solution to global warming or anything else. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring what happens to this planet. This is Radio EcoShock. Laid up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock.org.